wonderful seeing all of you this morning. Thank you for choosing to worship with us today. I pray that your hearts are already uh, filled and blessed by the fellowship and by our worship to God as we've worshiped him through song and, and now have opportunity to worship him by opening our ears and our hearts to him to receive from his word. And to that end, let me invite you uh, to turn in your Bibles for the last time to Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 50. People have asked me, what are we going to do after Genesis? And I often say, we're going to start back over again. Because uh, I feel only now that I am ready to preach through the book of Genesis. But we will be moving on. Uh, but today, uh, we, as we bring closure to our series through the book of Genesis, the verse-by-verse part of the exposition, we come this morning to Genesis 50. And my goal this morning is to cover verses 15 through 26. And the title of the message this morning is A Faithful Finish. A Faithful Finish. You know, if we learn anything in the Bible, uh, we learn that a good start does not guarantee a good finish. King Saul started off as a humble king who honored God, but... He ended as a disobedient king who died under the judgment of God. King Solomon started well as a man who loved God and who wanted wisdom from God above anything else that he could have asked for. Yet he came to love strange women, foreign women who ended up leading his heart astray from God and bringing much brokenness into his life as a result. Judas Iscariot started off as a disciple of Jesus Christ, preaching the gospel and doing miracles and casting out demons in Jesus' name, but he ended up betraying Jesus, and his life ended in suicide with his bowels gushing out of him as he fell headlong from the hanging. Over the years, some in this church have started off well, but they have finished poorly. They attended church when they were young and when their parents were bringing them to church and when their parents were around to watch them, they memorized Bible verses and won prizes in Awana. But once they got out from underneath their parents' shadow, their wayward heart revealed itself And they've abandoned the faith. And if they don't repent of their wickedness and their sin, they will leave a legacy of brokenness for themselves and for all who have known them. A good start does not always guarantee a good and faithful finish. But against the negative examples that I've just Given, we have the wonderful example of Joseph. Joseph is a tender man of faith in the first 56 years of his life that we have seen thus far. And he remains a tender man of faith in the last 54 years of his life that we will cover in our passage today. 
You will recall that Joseph's brothers hated him when he was a youth, so much so that they could not speak a friendly word to him. They threw him into a pit and they sold him into slavery when he was 17 years of age. Yet in God's providence, Joseph was brought down into Egypt and became a slave and then a prisoner in Potiphar's house. And then from prison, he rose to become Lord of the land of Egypt. And from that position of power, Joseph was used of God to lead the people of Egypt through seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of great famine. And during the seven years of famine, we have seen how Joseph's brothers come down from Canaan to Egypt to buy grain for themselves. Very long story short, Joseph tests them in various ways to uh, enough to see that they're different men than they were 17 years or 22 years prior when they had sinned against him. And he sees evidence that they are sorry for what they had done against him two decades prior. So Joseph reveals himself to them and says, I am Joseph. And he invites them to come and live in Egypt with him so that he can provide for them in the days to come. Well, his guilt-ridden brothers are so thunderstruck by Joseph's revelation of himself that they're speechless. They can't say a word in reply. So Joseph speaks to them in Genesis 45, and in verse 5 and following, he says to them, Do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He then urges them to go get their father and to come to him in Egypt so that he can provide for them in the land of Egypt. And they hurry to obey him and they bring their father with them back to Egypt and we have seen how they have lived under Joseph's care for 17 years together with their aging father, Jacob. But we saw last week how Jacob dies, leaving Joseph and his brothers to carry on without this patriarch of the family. Our passage today covers literally the span of 54 years when you run the math on Joseph's life from the time of Jacob's death to the time of Joseph's death. One can say that this is the time period of Joseph's life when we have opportunity to see who he really is when he is out from beneath his father's shadow. Joseph's brothers actually fear that he's going to be a different man now that their father is gone, yet we're going to see that the version of Joseph out from beneath his father's shadow is exactly the same Joseph that we have been seeing all along, a tender man of faith. And the way we'll break down our study of our passage this morning is we'll observe five acts, five final acts of Joseph, which show him to be a tender man of faith to the very end 
of his life, a man who truly finished well. And the first act of Joseph that we see in our passage today is he weeps. He weeps. Commentators call him the weeping patriarch. He weeps when he hears his brother's fearful plea for forgiveness. As you guys know from experience, in some cases, a family member passing away can often cause unresolved tensions to rise to the surface. And that's what begins to happen in our passage today now that Jacob has died. Observe what happens beginning in verse 15. The text says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, and a good paraphrase would be when the reality of their father's death sunk in, they said, and they're saying this to one another, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him. Now, to their credit, these brothers understand the magnitude of their past sins. They speak of all the wrong, and they use the Hebrew word for evil here, all the evil which we did to him. And they shudder at the thought of what Joseph might now do to them now that their father is dead, if Joseph were to pay them back in full for what they had done against him many years prior. Keep in mind that Joseph has shown them nothing but kindness over these past 17 years in Egypt, yet here his brothers are agitating over what Joseph might do to them now that their father is dead. Joseph's brothers are seized with fear in this moment. Yet the following verses make it obvious that this fear is not just now dawning on them in this moment. Evidently, they were agitating over this matter even before Jacob died. And it seems like they brought the matter to their father, Jacob, before he died. And evidently, Jacob had even given them a message that they were to deliver to Joseph after he died. Observe what Joseph's brothers do in verse 16 and following. The text says, so they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong or evil. Some commentators suggest that these brothers are making this up, that Jacob never said anything of the sort, and they're just saying, hey, dad said to tell you to forgive us. But I would disagree with that. There's every reason to believe that Joseph's brothers are being honest here and telling Joseph that this was a message that their father wanted delivered to Joseph. Everything about Joseph's brother's behavior in this passage reflects humble repentance. So it's hard for me to imagine that they're making this story up about 
a message from their father to Joseph, commanding him or pleading with him to forgive them. And we'll see this as the passage unfolds. As for the content of Jacob's message that is being delivered to Joseph, it's an earnest plea from Jacob to Joseph saying, please forgive, I beg you. This is no casual request coming from Jacob to his son, Joseph, but it's a passionate plea to forgive his brothers of their sin. It reveals that Jacob had forgiven his sons of their sins. Jacob did not die a bitter man. He had forgiven them for what they had done, and now he's urging Joseph to do the same. That said, Jacob's request does not mean that he fears that Joseph still is carrying a grudge. He's speaking this request primarily, I think, for Joseph's brother's sake. When his sons would have come to him about their concern before he died, Jacob had no doubt told his sons that, hey, if you're worried about what Joseph is going to do after I die, then you should approach Joseph in humility and confession and ask his forgiveness. And he probably assured them that, hey, if you do that, then you can actually go to Joseph when you do so with a message from me to back up your request for Joseph's forgiveness, and I'll be an advocate for you. It seems that Jacob actually is helping his sons here with their confession through the words that Jacob himself uses in his message to Joseph. Notice the words that he uses. He calls what they did transgression and sin and something whereby they did Joseph wrong or evil. This is the biblical vocabulary of sin. In fact, this is the only verse in the Bible where you have these three words for sin piled together inside of one verse of scripture. Yet this same message speaking so honestly and forthrightly and biblically about their sin also contains a plea for Joseph to forgive his brothers of their transgression, their sin, and their evil. To their credit, Joseph's brothers are not just content to quote their father, they themselves are asking for forgiveness. In their message to Joseph, they say in verse 17, and now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. We observe here that they're not mincing words about their own sin. They call their sin transgression, just as Jacob did clearly identifying their sin as a rebellious act against the God of heaven and a severe breach of trust between them and Joseph. This is a great example for us. As R. Kent Hughes says, they employed no euphemisms. They did not call their sin a mistake or a lapse or an error in judgment as is so common today. They call it transgression. True repentance involves using the biblical language of sin. 
Nonetheless, they reveal that they're in a different place now than they were when they sinned against Joseph many years prior. They're no longer servants of their own hatred and, and their sin, but they're servants of the God of Joseph's father. That's how they speak of themselves. God has made them different men than they were when they had committed their sins against Joseph. And yet they want to bring this to Joseph and remind him basically of remember what we did against you. We're asking you to forgive us. Well, how does Joseph respond to their message? Well, we're told at the very end of verse 17, these words, and Joseph wept when they spoke to him. He wept. And by the way, notice how the language changes here, revealing that Joseph's brothers are now speaking to him, which means that they spoke to Joseph directly. It seems they would have communicated initially their request first through a messenger, and then they actually came to Joseph and made this request personally in his presence, at which point Joseph is weeping. Why is he weeping? Well, he's weeping for his brothers. He's sorry to see them afraid of him after all that he has done for them over these past 17 years. He's weeping in frustration, wondering how many years he will need to be good to them before they will rest easy in his love. He's weeping over the tyranny of sin that many of us are familiar with, that even when sin has been forgiven it can still torment the conscience and fill the heart with irrational fears. Beyond all that, as one writer says, Joseph was brokenhearted, probably realizing that their estrangement was not yet fully healed. There were probably more reasons why he is weeping here, maybe marveling at the providence of God to bring them all to this amazing moment one of the things you begin to think about at this point is that when Joseph revealed himself to his brothers 17 years earlier, there's no record in the text of his brothers asking his forgiveness for their sin against him. I personally suspect that they did so, but it's not recorded. It's quite possible that they had never yet confessed their sin this openly yet. And that it's only now that they're doing so for the first time together as a group. As Joseph weeps before them, before he can reply, observe what his brothers do in verse 18. The text says, then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. Literally, we are your slaves. These brothers once sold Joseph into slavery, and now they're offering themselves as Joseph's slaves to make full restitution. They're also essentially saying, Joseph, you can forgive us or you can choose not to forgive us. We know what we deserve and we will accept either outcome. If you want to make us your slaves, we will be your slaves. We are completely at your mercy to do with as you please. This is humility. Also, Joseph's brothers are behaving much like the prodigal son in Luke 
chapter 15 does, who resolves to return to his father and say, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And Joseph's brothers are bowed before Joseph right now. And they're saying to him, we're not worthy to be your brothers. We would be most honored to simply be your slaves. What a powerful, poignant moment this had to have been for Joseph. When he was 17 years of age, Joseph dreamed that his brothers would bow before him. Little could he have imagined that on one of those occasions, they would bow before him in repentance for their crimes against him. Little could Joseph have imagined that he himself would be weeping as he sees them bowed before him in repentance. Well, thus far, all Joseph has been able to do is cry. But eventually he responds, which brings us to the second act of Joseph, which shows him to be a tender man of faith to the very end of his life. Number two, he speaks words of comforting truth and assurance to his brothers. Observe Joseph's verbal response to his brothers in verse 19. The text says, but Joseph said to them, do not be afraid for am I in God's place? He assures them, you have nothing to be afraid of from me. And then he asks this amazing question, am I in the place of God? What he's saying is, am I in the place of God to retaliate and execute vengeance against you? This is actually an amazing statement for a man to make who did not yet have a Bible verse to teach him this. Yet he already knows what the Bible later is going to teach that vengeance belongs to God. And Joseph dares not put himself in the place of God and do what only God can do. Think about that. When someone has wronged you, one of the first questions you need to ask is, what's my place? Am I in the place of God? R. Kent Hughes says it this way. Joseph had a clear view of who God was, and he matched it with a clear understanding of who he himself was not. He had no desire to be God in his brother's lives. Hughes goes on to say, how much of our relational trouble comes from our attempting to be God in other people's lives? Oh, if we were only God for a day, we would set so many evils right, wouldn't we? No, we'd make a mess. In our bad moments, we imagine that we know what God ought to do with others. And at our very worst moments, we take correction into our own hands because God apparently has not had the wisdom to do so. So we put on our junior God badge and we assume the place of God and do vengeance. Joseph doesn't do that. He refuses to do that. Am I in the place of God, he asks. Now, amazingly, 
having spoken the way he's just spoken, saying, don't be afraid, I'm not in the place of God, he also doesn't sugarcoat his brother's sin either. Look at what he says in verse 20. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me. That's a painfully true statement that Joseph is making about their sin. He doesn't say, oh, it's okay. I'm sure you guys really didn't mean to do what you did. It was an off day. We all make mistakes. No, they did mean harm. Their actions were evil. Their motives were evil. They truly intended to do harm to Joseph. And Joseph refuses, to his credit, to minimize that. He calls their actions and their motives evil. Yet notice how he finishes his sentence. Listen to what he says to his brothers in verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Joseph points out how God sovereignly allowed his brothers to do their evil against him and how God meant it, meant their evil for good. Joseph is saying more than the fact that God, after the fact, found some way to use their evil to bring about a good outcome. He's actually saying that God meant it meant their evil for good. This is the astounding mystery of God's sovereignty and how it commingles with the evil actions of people. Joseph's brothers did wrong. They're fully responsible for the wrong that they did against Joseph. God did not tempt them to do the wrong that they did, nor did he make them do what they did, yet... He sovereignly allowed their evil and meant their evil for good to bring about an amazingly good outcome. And that outcome was that Joseph would be taken down to Egypt and eventually become the Lord of the land. And as Joseph says, bring about this present result to preserve many people alive, including Joseph's brothers and their households. You may read that and say, well, I'm glad that was true in Joseph's case, that God would allow the evil done against him to lead to a good outcome. Well, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 28, this truth is not simply true for Joseph in this instance. Romans 8, 28 tells us that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to to his purpose, there is nothing that ever happens to you, no matter how evil it might be, that God does not intend to use to bring about a good outcome, either in this life or in the life to come. And if you refuse to believe this, then you're forced to conclude that there are some evils that are more powerful than God. And you're saying that evil has the last word. And I want to submit to you that evil doesn't deserve that much credit from us. Joseph didn't even have the promise of Romans 8 to read and memorize 
but he had experienced the truth of it. And he speaks it here to comfort his brothers in a most amazing way. So he says in verse 21, so therefore do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Literally, the Hebrew reads, he comforted them and spoke to their hearts. That's literally how the text reads. In other words, he was able through his words to actually reach the hearts of his brothers and put their hearts at ease. He's saying to them, God used your evil to bring me to the place that I am right now. And I'm going to use the position that I'm in right now to continue to provide for you and for your little ones. I haven't been good to you up to this point over these last 17 years simply to make our father happy. I've been good to you because I believe God's sovereign good hand is in all of this, and I'm going to continue to provide for you and love you and forgive you even now that father is dead. With that message communicated in a way that reaches his brother's hearts, all that is left for Joseph to do is to live out his life with his brothers, which he does. And this brings us to the third act of Joseph, which shows him to be a tender man of faith to the very end of his life. Number three, he lives out his life with his brothers long enough to see great grandsons born. Observe what is said in verse 22. Now, Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Theoretically, Joseph you know, could have at any point approached Pharaoh and asked him for his permission for him and all of his family to return to Canaan. But it seems that Joseph and his brothers are all being governed by the promise of God to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, that they're going to be in a foreign land for 400 years and become a mighty nation before they're brought out of that foreign land by God. So Joseph lives out his life with his brothers in Egypt. He's content to be here, and so are they. And he lives 110 years, 54 years beyond his father's death. He lived long enough to see his own family through Ephraim and Manasseh, his two sons, grow. In verse 23, we read, that Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons and also the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. That expression, the third generation of Ephraim's sons, at least means that Joseph saw his great-grandsons through Ephraim born, and it probably also means that he saw his great-great-grandsons through Ephraim born. Manasseh was Joseph's firstborn son, and Manasseh had a son named Machir. And we're told here that Manasseh's grandsons, through his son Machir, were born on Joseph's knees, which means at least that Joseph was there on the happy occasion 
of their birth and that these grandsons were handed to him so that he could receive them and love them with the love that only a great or great, great grandfather can give. The picture here is one of fruitfulness and joy and even family unity. Proverbs 17, 6 tells us that grandchildren are the crown of old men. I have one grandchild, so I'm an old man, according to this passage, and I have one crown, and some of you have multiple crowns. We see Joseph being crowned with this blessing of grandchildren and great-grandchildren and even great-great-grandchildren before he passed away. Kind of backing up just a little bit, throughout these years, Joseph's family is growing, as is the families of his brothers. You'll recall that there were 70 descendants of Jacob who came from Canaan to Egypt with Jacob, uh, not counting their their wives. These are 70 descendants of Jacob that had been born essentially in a 50-year time span, which if you do the math represents a 6% growth rate per year, according to the commentator Henry Morris. Once they arrive in Egypt, we're told in Genesis 47:27 that Jacob's descendants were fruitful and became very numerous during that 17-year time period before Jacob died. If you allow for just a modest 5% growth rate per year during that 17 years, then Jacob's family would have been around 220 at the time of Jacob's death. If that same rate of growth continued through the next 54 years up to Joseph's death, then the family of Israel would have been over 3,000 people by the time of Joseph's death. Joseph had to have rejoiced in all of this growth and abundance and blessing, but he had to have also found himself worrying about what's going to become of all of these family members once I die. And they had to start worrying about that a little bit also. They all had to be thinking about God's promise to Abraham that I referenced just a few minutes ago in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, where God had told Abraham that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years before God would then bring them out. And Joseph and all of his family had to know that it's Egypt. That's the foreign land where this is going to happen. And so at some point on the road ahead, this is going to happen in Egypt to our descendants. And this would have left Joseph and all of his family members with deep concerns about what the road ahead involves. Yet before Joseph dies, he speaks to these concerns in a wonderful way that reflects great faith. And this leads us to the fourth act of Joseph, which shows him to be a tender man of faith all the way to the very end of his life. Number four, he teaches his brothers that God will take care to bring them back to the promised land of Canaan. Near the end of his life, Joseph calls his family together and speaks 
to them. Observe what he does in verse 24. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Basically, there are three things that Joseph is promising his family. The first thing he promises them is that God's surely going to take care of them. This is a huge statement of faith for Joseph to make for his own benefit and for the benefit of his family members. It has been Joseph's burden for the last 71 years now to take care of his family and to provide for all of them. But what's going to happen after he dies? Who will take care of them? He answers that and says to them, God will surely take care of you. Joseph is no doubt speaking this truth as much for his own benefit as he is doing so for the benefit of his family members. Interestingly, the verb translated take care could be translated visit. And many of your translations use the word visit. In using this word, Joseph is not simply speaking of God taking care of them throughout the length of their entire stay in the land of Egypt. But he's also speaking about a coming day in the distant future when God is going to visit them in mercy and in power and do something extraordinary that will lead to them being delivered from the land of Egypt. In fact, hundreds of years from now, God is going to speak to a man named Moses and call him to go to Egypt. And he will tell Moses to gather the leaders of Israel together and say to them these words, among others, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And the Hebrew word that is translated concerned there in Exodus 3.16 is the very word that Joseph uses right here in Genesis 50 when he promises his family that God will take care of them. And so God is speaking through Moses hundreds of years later. And by Moses using that word, He's announcing to them, this is the fulfillment of what Joseph promised hundreds of years ago. Ancient Jewish commentators said this word was the password. That when Moses came and he used this word, the Jews would hear that and go, oh, this is the fulfillment of what Joseph promised many years ago. And so we should follow this man, Moses. Looking back in our text in Genesis 50, God promises his family that God is going to take care of them. The second thing he promises his family is that God will bring them up from the land of Egypt. And the third thing he promises his family is that God will bring them to the land that he had sworn by oath to give to their forefathers, 
Joseph is pointing them back to the promises that God had made to Abraham, the promises he had made to Isaac and the promises that he had made to Jacob. And he's wanting his family to rest in the faithfulness, the covenant faithfulness of God. Joseph is saying, I'm about to die. You can't depend on me, but you can depend on God who is a promise making and a promise keeping God. And you can rest secure in his care and in his promises. By the way, you might want to underline the words Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. In this verse, you'll actually see these three names strung together, I think, 28 more times in the Bible, if I counted right. Throughout the rest of the Bible, this is the very first time that their names are strung together like this. And it's on the lips of Joseph. God had promised the land of Canaan to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph is assuring his family that God is going to make good on the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's one more thing that Joseph does before he dies, which brings us to the fifth and final act of Joseph, which shows him to be a tender man of faith to the very end of his life. Number five, he makes his family swear to carry his bones from Egypt when God brings them back to Canaan. He makes his family swear to carry his bones from Egypt when God brings them back to Canaan. Observe what he does in verse 25. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. This is now the second time that Joseph has promised them that God will take care of them. He then gives this instruction to his family, and he says, you shall carry my bones up from here. And he doesn't just give them this instruction, but he succeeds in making them swear that they will honor his wishes. None of them are going to be alive when the time comes to take Joseph's bones from Egypt, which means that their promise means that they're going to have to pass this responsibility down to their descendants teaching them that they must honor this oath that they have made to take Joseph's bones to Canaan when they leave Egypt in a future day. Observe what happens in verse 26. The text says, So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. It's significant that the final verse of Genesis includes the words, Joseph died. And that the final sentence of this amazing book tells us how a dead body was placed in a coffin. As the commentator Derek Kidner says, man has traveled far from Eden to a coffin. And the story of Genesis chronicles that journey in painful detail. Yet this man being placed in a coffin is a believing man who has his eye on the future and believes that God is up to something great. As for Joseph, his coffin would not have been buried 
in the ground. His body would be lying in state in a building somewhere as a silent witness to Joseph's faith in God's promise to one day take his people out of Egypt and to bring them to the land that he had promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how the book of Genesis ends. There's so much for us to draw from the passage we've looked at this morning. Let's try to hit on a few if we can. First of all, I love the picture of Joseph's brothers confessing their sin to Joseph, bowing before him in humility, and the picture of Joseph showing them forgiveness and kindness, even though their sins were awful against him. This is the miracle of grace in all of their lives that enables them now to live together as one people, something that would have never happened without grace, humility, and forgiveness. Think about it. Abraham's sons, Ishmael, And Isaac, Abraham is the man of promise. He had Ishmael and Isaac. And how did they get along? They didn't end up getting along and they were not able to live together as one people. Isaac's sons, Esau and Jacob, they were twins even. How did they get along? Oh, they had their issues and had to go their separate ways and live as a separate people. Jacob then has 12 sons and they started out in a way that was sure to leave them all parting ways and living as separate and even warring peoples. Yet God's grace worked in their lives and prevailed in their lives. And he brought them all together and through humility and repentance and grace, they're all going to be able to live together as one people for centuries to come Let's not lose sight of how astounding of a miracle this is. The humility and the forgiveness and the grace that is shown in our passage today lays the foundation for this remarkable unity that will endure for centuries. Our repentance, our humility, humbling ourselves and confessing our sin before our big brother, Jesus, And the grace that he has shown to us is the foundation for the unity that we have as Christians, not only with our God, but also with each other. As we learn to be humble and gracious and repentant in our relationships with each other. Another thing that's worth noting in our passage today is the fact that Joseph has lived 93 years of his life in the land of Egypt, 93 years. Yet evidently he never got sucked away from his primary identity as a member of the family of Israel. That's an amazing thing. He never allowed his success in Egypt to cause him to forget who he was as a son of Israel and a brother to the sons of Israel, nor did he let the wounds that some of the sons of Israel had inflicted upon him change his mind about his identification either. In his dying request, he makes it clear that he wants to be buried in Canaan where the family of Israel will one day be. And we need to have the same mindset 
We have so much more equipment to have this same mindset as Christians. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we are sons and daughters of God. And we're followers of of Jesus Christ. And we should be honored to identify ourselves with Christ. And to even be identified with our broken brothers and sisters in Christ who sometimes wrong us. Another thing worth noting in our passage today is how important God viewed Joseph's actions in our passage. This is amazing to me. Joseph lived a sweeping life of many wonderful, epic deeds. Yet it may surprise you to know that the only thing that Joseph ever did that got mentioned in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11 is what he does in our passage today while dying. In Hebrews eleven twenty two, we read the following words. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. That's it. Of all the amazing things Joseph did during his life, what gets mentioned in the hall of faith is that in his dying hour, he made mention of the coming exodus of the sons of Israel from Egypt, and he gave instructions to his family regarding what to do with his body after he dies. Clearly, Joseph was not ambivalent about what his family should do with his body after he died, and evidently, neither was God ambivalent about what should happen to his body after he died. Joseph wanted what was done with his body after he died to serve as a testimony of his faith in what God had promised to do. Joseph is a dying man, and he probably thought that his most noteworthy deeds of faith were already done. Yet in his dying hours, he speaks words of faith that get mentioned in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. And I want you, all of us, to take encouragement from this. God is not through with you until you take your last breath. And it just may be that your greatest act of faith is something that you do in your waning years. Maybe even when you are dying. And it may even have to do with instructions that you give to your family as to what to do regarding your funeral or even what to do with your body. Every moment of your life bristles with opportunity for you to believe in God and to manifest and express your faith in him and your dying moments may provide you the most meaningful opportunities of all. Joseph is manifesting his faith in God to the very end of his life. And as the commentator Derek Kidner says Joseph's charge concerning his bones was a gesture of faith that would not be disappointed. And he's right. God will visit the children of Israel in a future day. He will bring them up from Egypt to the land of Canaan, just as he promised. When they leave Egypt, the children of Israel will carry Joseph's bones with them and carry them to the land of Canaan, just as Joseph made them swear To do, and we see that in Exodus 13. In the days of Joshua, the children of Israel will settle into the land of Canaan, and when they do so, the bones of Joseph will be buried 
and Shechem in the land of Canaan. We see that in Joshua 24. God will establish the children of Israel once they settle in the land of Canaan. He will establish them in the land of Canaan. He will set a descendant of Judah named David on the throne of Israel and make a covenant promise to him that his throne will endure forever. And from among the descendants of David will come a Messiah, Jesus Christ, who will die on a cross for our sins and be raised from the dead and who will one day sit on the throne of David and reign over the earth in perfect righteousness. Jesus died just as he promised he would. He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as he promised that he would. And Jesus is right now at the right hand of God, giving salvation to all who repent of their sins and believe in him and call upon his name for salvation. And if you've never believed in Jesus, I call upon you to believe in him today. He is ready to save and to use the power that he now has at his disposal to grant forgiveness and relationship and pardon and righteousness to all who believe in him. As full of faith as Joseph was at the very end of his life, I'm confident he could not have imagined the fullness of all that God was going to do in the centuries to come. We might read the account of Joseph's life and wish that we could have lived in his day. The truth is that Joseph would have loved to have lived in our day. According to Hebrews 11, people like Joseph gained approval through their faith, yet they did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they, men like Joseph, should not be made perfect. There are 1,189 chapters in the story of redemption called our Bible. Joseph died in the 50th chapter of this story. So much happened after Joseph died in the remaining 1,139 chapters of our Bible. And you and I are now living in the 1,000. 190th chapter of redemption history, the chapter that began when the final chapter of Scripture was concluded. You may be excited to meet Joseph in heaven one day. I'm here to tell you he's going to be just as excited to meet you. You upon whom the fullness of the gospel and darkness has fallen. You realize that without you, Joseph is not complete. Meeting you in heaven and hearing your story of faith in Christ and experiencing God's eternal goodness in heaven together with you is going to give Joseph a feeling of completeness that he never experienced in his life. In our passage today, we see how God took what Joseph's Brothers meant for evil and how God used that for good to bring about a great deliverance, even for Joseph's brothers who committed the evil. A greater evil than what Joseph's brothers did to him was our evil in crucifying Christ, the son of God. Jesus came into the world. He did nothing but good. 
Yet he was slain by the hands of wicked men, including our own. But what we meant for evil, God meant for good. Amen. God took the evil that was done against Christ at his crucifixion and he used it for good so that through the shed blood of Jesus at the cross, there might now be atonement for everyone who repents of their sins and believes in his name. The evils that were done against Christ as bad as they were, did not have the last word. God did. And if God can take the evils that were done against Jesus at the cross and cause those evils to work together for good, then he can do the same with the evils that are done against you or have been done against you. And if God can overpower evil in this way, there's no evil that you yourself have ever done that God cannot atone for through the death of his son at the cross. Our sins are great, but our sins are no match for God's power and grace. In closing, we've seen today how the book of Genesis finishes. And we've seen today how Joseph finishes his life. But how will you finish? I'm not asking how you've started. I'm asking how will you finish? Will you finish your life in faith or will you finish your life in shipwreck? Will you finish your life with grace and forgiveness or will you finish your life with bitterness and anger? Will you finish your life with a tender heart or will you finish your life with a hardened heart, hardened toward God and hardened toward others? Will you finish your life trusting God's promises or will you finish your life in unbelief. I trust and I pray that you will finish your life the way Joseph finishes his life, that you will walk in faith and that you will live in faith, persevering to the very end. And that even while dying, you will be found speaking words that are worthy of the hall of faith. That's my prayer for me and for all of us. And let's go to God and ask him to help us with this. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the truth that you have put before us today. And I just have to say thank you for all the truth that you have put before us throughout this amazing book of Genesis. Help us to be faithful, but even upstream of that, Lord, help us to be believing. Give us faith. Faith in you that we can look back in history and believe the truth of what is declared to us in the gospel and that with the eye of faith we can look into the future at things that have not yet been accomplished but know that they will and that we will go all the way to our last breath believing the truth that you declare of what is still to come 
of the second coming of Christ when he comes to this earth and visits the world in both judgment and then mercy upon his people. Establishing his reign upon the earth in perfect righteousness, judging the wicked and lavishing goodness upon those who believe in him. We look forward to the day of resurrection when our bodies are raised from the earth, clothed with immortality and glory, that we would live for all of eternity with you, Lord Jesus, body and soul, completely free of sin and with physical bodies that are throbbing with life and strength and vitality and glory. Oh, there are still things we look forward to, Lord. You have done so much that you have promised that we have more reason to believe than Joseph did. I pray that if there's any in this room, Lord, that have never cried out to you for salvation, that you would look upon them with mercy, that you would touch their heart, that you would give them life, that they would be able to respond to you in faith and become a child of God today through faith in Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to give of our offerings to you, and we ask that you would receive all that is given in this offering for the glory of Jesus, for the spread of the message of salvation through him. At the same time, we surrender ourselves to you, and we do so in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.